Hello again, my lovely listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Glow West, where we chat all about the wonderful world of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on culture, politics, society, and of course, my favorite topic of sex. If you like what we do, we really do appreciate your support. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to help keep the mics up and running. Or if you like, please pop over to Apple and rate and review. And you can now rate and review on Spotify, which is pretty awesome. So please do that if you feel so inclined. If you want to get in touch about the podcast, the Twitter and Instagram is at Glow West Podcast. So we talk about sex a lot, obviously, on the podcast. It is a sex podcast, but we also talk about sex work. And there's lots of different models to dealing with how we approach sex work from policing to health to legislation to all manner of different ways but that can be kind of confusing for some people if we don't know you know the ins and outs and what do sex workers actually want because they're the experts of their own experiences so but oftentimes their voice doesn't get heard so much so what do you know people who work in this area think of the debate so obviously it's a pretty intense debate at times um but I have an expert here with me today to kind of help us navigate our way through and to understand a little bit more about all these different models that we have so today I'm joined by Dr. Nina Voiladjari, who is a sociologist specialising in sex work and migration. She's done extensive research on the consequences of client criminalisation to sex workers. She is an assistant professor in international migration at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And she's joining me here today. Nina, how are you? Hello, Caroline. Um, I'm good. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here with you today. Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming along. I think, you know, this is an area that lots of people have really good intentions to support sex workers um, as they should do and as we all should do. But maybe they don't necessarily understand the different kind of models that are out there. So your specialty is in investigating what the Nordic model is. So do you mind explaining to listeners what exactly the Nordic model is when it comes to sex work? Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, so the Nordic model is a, is a kind of a feminist-inspired uh, prostitution policy model in a sense that um, it, it focuses uh, on the sex buyers, uh, but not uh, on the sellers. So it criminalizes the buying of sex, but not the selling of sex. Um, and it originates from Sweden. Um, it was implemented there in 1999. And then after that, it has um, uh, spread around the world. Uh, you have it, for example, uh, uh, implemented in Ireland. It's also implemented in Canada and France. Um, yeah, I think that... Yeah. That would be a good short introduction to it. So on the surface, for some people, criminalizing the clients and not the sex worker sounds like a good thing because we don't want to make sex workers make their life even harder. But the reality of this model is not quite as simple. No, exactly. Uh, so I think one part of its success is that it, it looks so appealing. It looks uh, kind of woman friendly. Uh, like a, like it's branded as a feminist, but if we look um, at its kind of roots and understandings of, of sex work, um, as well as its implementation, uh, this kind of um, nice image crumbles a little bit. So, so it has its roots in radical feminist understandings of, of, of sexual commerce. So um, 
sex work, uh, different kind of sex work like porn or um, like full service sex work, um, traditionally called as prostitution, are seen as um, part of men's violence against women. So they're in the continuum of, of men's violence against women. So in a way, um, these conceptualizations uh, make consensual sex work um, kind of impossible because, you know, um, sex work becomes something that you cannot fully consent to. So in this sense, it portrays or, or spreads these kind of stigmatized images of, of sex work as violent, inherently violent. Um, and in my research, I especially looked at uh, how it's implemented in Sweden, uh, Norway and Finland. And what I found in my, my research is that um, the focus uh, on, on, on sex buyers and client criminalization um, is more of a smokescreen and that um, the implementation of this policy has led to overall aim to uh, get rid of, abolish the sex trade. And this has been done through um, policing of sex workers through various other laws and, and deporting sex workers and, and using forced ev evictions and, and, and police harassment as a way to prevent sex workers uh, from operating. Like, I, this is the thing that gets me, like, you, you know, there's such a huge difference between ideology and reality. But if you're claiming to be a feminist, and we know that feminism comes in so many different forms, and there's no one kind of feminism. Um, but if you're claiming that, you know, you, you're really acting in women's best interests, and, you know, obviously, this is a very gendered argument as well. Um, but then you're supporting laws that is deporting vulnerable people back to countries where they're going to experience hardship and possible violence and uh, possible death, you know, because a lot of the people being deported are escaping horrendous situations at home or they are being evicted. I just don't know how that's viewed as very feminist if you're forcing women into poverty and homelessness and into, you know, kicking them out of the country. Like, how is that feminist? Uh, well, from my point of view, it's not. And um, how could I say, like, I feel that uh, the discussion um, of the proponents of this law um, solely focuses on kind of the mantra that we don't punish the women, we don't criminalize, that, um, that we only want to focus on the clients. But it doesn't really look what's happening kind of on the background and what, how does the police actually implement the law. Um, and also kind of like one big problem here is this idea of, of kind of, of the police as being the protector. Uh, we know that for many people, like if we think about uh, non-conformist um, um, non queers or sex workers or people of color, or um, migrants in general, the police is often not a not somebody who will protect you, but rather leads to punishment. So um, this kind of uh, uh, reliance on law and order rather than like, for example, social welfare projects uh, that would assist sex workers um, to work more safely, to have access to healthcare, uh, as well as like providing, um, I don't know, education or opportunities for different kind of employment or, or um, advocating for, for increased social welfare would be different approach to, to kind of uh, problems in sex work. 
Yeah, well, because let's face it, like there, absolutely, there are people who choose to engage in sex work and they're earning tons and tons of money, and that's great and everything's fantastic. But a lot of people are doing it to put food on the table, and it's very much survival work that perhaps they might not choose if they had other options. So, like, sex work is often a question of poverty and not sex as such. So, definitely. How how do we how do then do they view how does that that social welfare program and support and education fit then with the Nordic model approach? Well, like actually in Sweden, um, where 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 the law originates and which is often <clears throat> the reference point in international discussions, um, uh, when the law was implemented, there was it was supposed to be like um, secondary to social. Um, social welfare projects but actually no money was directed to these kind of programs and instead it was direct to policing um, and kind of like policy development which is very much kind of distant from the everyday level and everyday lives of people in the sex trade and what I found out in my, my research is that actually um, the services there are very uh, limited because um, first of all, they are not open to um, migrants or they're open, but they, are, they don't have any advertising in other languages than Swedish. And, and also because they don't uh, offer much low threshold health and welfare services, migrants don't often uh, turn to them. So they're focused in mostly in counseling because um, uh, if you have this perspective of, of uh, sex work as a form of violence um it is seen to cause trauma and you you often uh, are seen to need to be in like need of counseling and therapeutic services rather than uh help with your economic uh or housing situation for example mm, but the, yeah they all go hand in hand don't they you can't really <laughs> yeah. engage in counseling quite well when you're homeless and mm-hmm. struggling to survive and so, so you said earlier that the goal of the North model is to end demand. So Sweden has had it for, mm. since 1999. We're now in 2022. My maths are appalling, but I think that's 23 years, uh, give or take. Um, what has it ended demand? Is there zero sex work in Sweden now after this very <laughs> successful campaign? Well, uh, there definitely is sex work in Sweden and, and many of the um, sex workers I talked to said that um, actually the market is quite uh, good uh, in Sweden. The prices are quite high. And and I think also because the police um, operation is so repressive, so um, there are kind of less sex workers, so you have less competition. Um, when it comes to kind of like uh, decreasing the demand or ending the demand, uh, there's been some slight uh, few percentage of drop um, in kind of some sort of service. Um, and of course, like, you know, some people don't want to break the law and there's also a massive stigma, um, towards commercial sex, uh, in Sweden. So I'm sure it has some sort of effect, but, um, I would, uh, emphasize that we need to think at, at what cost and what kind of effects it has, um, on the lives and, and, and working conditions of people. It is set, it says it, it aims to protect, uh, which is sex workers themselves. 
And, and it does have very real effects. Like you said, so if you were a migrant sex worker in Sweden, you know, they could be especially vulnerable for other reasons. If you have no legal status or, you know, you're a quite vulnerable person. But if something happens to you, um, you know, if you're if you're assaulted or something, you can't really go to the police then because they'll just deport you back to a, an even more precarious situation. So there's there is a racist element to that approach. Definitely. And if we think about how the law is um, like in Sweden, Norway and Finland, so so selling sex is decriminalized, but it's a ground for deportation in the immigration law. So we see these racist tendencies there and that like, you know, um, that the model actually doesn't decriminalize all sex work, only the national sex workers. And they are then um, kind of like harassed by other laws. But yeah, there is definitely these racist tendencies. And what, what we can see is that, um, like many of the informants said to me, that uh, they would not uh, uh, contact the police if it's not about life, because the consequences of contacting the officials uh, can be so great. For example, being deported, but also um, being evicted and losing your housing. Um, so you need to think about, like... Um, uh, you know, at what cost would you report, for example, a robbery or something like you might have lost a couple of thousand uh, of euros. But then um, if you reported it to the police, you might lose your apartment or your hotel or apartment rental, um, which or and be deported. So so um, and beyond the cops radar as well as we know Mm. from some cases in Ireland that the police have you know monitored sex workers you know when when they're on their radar and that obviously isn't great um you know it's not going to make them feel pretty comfortable if you know they know that they're being watched and they know that their clients might be observed going in you know and at risk Mm -hmm. of being arrested but we also have um you know in in ireland the nordic model has resulted in the fact that two sex workers cannot work together in the same building for safety otherwise they will be charged as brothel keepers and pretty much most of the people who've been charged under that law have been migrants so again the the racial element is something that we can't um forget about but is, is that the same um, in the Nordic countries that you cannot work together with someone else for safety? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the pimping law is very broad. So um, all kind of assistance of sex work, um, whether you get uh, uh, any compensation for it or not, is criminalized, uh, which means that you, if you're like, like many Swedish sex workers have had trouble of their boyfriends who live in the same apartment being accused of pimping, uh, which has made their like personal life uh, very difficult and kind of being harassed by the officials. Also, if you work together, the one who has the lease uh, will is accused as the pimp. Um, also, if you have somebody to driving you or providing security, that's pimping. Um, so it's very, um, yeah, very repressive on that that front. And also like. Um, the pimping law is so broad that a regular landlord uh, can be accused of pimping. So what the police does is that instead of um, uh, like kind of like they don't have to do any legal measures, they can just call the landlord and say that somebody is selling sex in your apartment. So if you don't get rid of this person, you will be accused of pimping uh, and in this way force, uh, forcefully evict uh, sex workers from their apartment. So it's kind of an easy tool also for the police to get rid of sex workers 
um, and meet their goals, so to speak. Yeah, and what a goal! <laughs> like it's just, yeah, that's it's. I just don't know how making vulnerable people even more vulnerable is is a good thing. And yeah, it, it's you know, and the research from Ireland from Ugly Mugs, which is a sex worker support agency, has said that violent attacks on sex workers have risen something like ninety two percent since. Um, the Nordic model was introduced in Ireland in 2017, which is huge, like 92% increase. And so it's hard to kind of stand over that law and view it as a success when when that's the reality. But then talk me through the other models then. So people point to Amsterdam a lot and they're like, well, you know, it's, it's legal, it's in Windows. And it's like, mm, there's a bit more to it than that approach. Yeah, like, uh, like the Netherlands, it's not the like full decriminalization because there's regulations on uh, where, when, and how you can do sex work. Um, so in that sense, um, people who don't or can't um, uh, like fit to the bureaucratic regulations are left out and criminalized. And and um, as in the Nordic countries, um, everywhere else, um, almost everywhere else, uh, there's a specific laws towards migrant sex work. So it's hard to get a working permit in the industry. And in this sense, um, uh, migrant workers are always kind of criminalized uh, in even in this legalized system. And we need to remember that nowadays in Europe, a majority of people who engage in sex work are migrants, like the estimates vary from 30 to 90%. So it's a big majority of workers. So. Um, one of the things that I try to bring up in my research is that we cannot really talk about sex work without talking about migration. Yeah. But yeah, uh, returning to the, the kind of legalizing model is that um, it doesn't fully decriminalize sex work. It still regulates uh, sex work as a specific industry and defines the locations and, and, um, and uh, times uh, and how sex work can be uh, uh, operated or worked so there's some places is it zurich i think maybe and you can get like it's like a drive up brothel basically like there's little areas where you can park and it's it's all kind of like that's like the sanctioned place where sex work is but is that safer is that how, how is that viewed by sex workers I think it's definitely safer uh for street sex work um and also that you have kind of opportunities to wash and um, there are some uh, observance over the area. Um, so what we have seen, for example, with different types of criminalization, for example, with, um, uh, with the Nordic model in France, we've seen that sex work has moved um, to um, areas that are further from the city centers, um, etc. And this has led to um, increase in violence. So in that sense, these kind of like uh, working zones uh, can be a good solution uh, for sex work. Okay, okay. That's so so one way of kind of doing it. But then the reality, like you said, if, if someone is a migrant, they're not going to have access to, you know, registered places and, and things like that. So they're still going to be left out in the cold, so to speak. Yeah, I think... Uh, um, in, in this country case too, uh, it is very hard for the for a sex worker to get a working working visa. So most people are working without the kind of government approval. And in this way, 
being criminalized and and need to avoid police and official contact, which always uh, puts sex workers at risk. Yeah, because this is the thing, and that's what happened in in Ireland, and I'm sure in Sweden as well. That like clients know that sex worker is vulnerable. They they can use the the threat of the police against them. Or, you know, they know in, in Ireland, like, oh, the sex worker is going to be working alone. And it's like, it's, it's almost easy targets for really awful people to commit violence. And again, how is that not taken into account in these laws? Yeah, definitely. It's like in Norway, for example, there was this um, group of people who was robbing uh, sex workers on a gunpoint uh, for some time. Uh, because sex workers were afraid to um, report these incidents uh, to uh, to anyone. Uh, so definitely they're targeted. And in Sweden, um, there were cases where clients were um, blackmailing sex workers, saying that we will report your apartment to your landlord if, if you don't give free services, um, uh, all kind of things. So, of course, this, these kind of things put... Um, sex workers at risk and at harm's way. But I think one reason why um, like it seems so obvious that this model, when you look at the realities, uh, it seems so obvious that the Nordic model is very harmful for sex, sex workers and puts them um, at danger. But I think there is kind of a blind spot, like for example, in the Swedish media, like there's no discussion on the downsides of the law or its actual implementation. And I think many of the of the uh, abolitionist feminists who um, advocate this also turn the blind eye to the realities. And um, yeah. And that's, it's just wild to me how that, how that can happen that like it's great to have the ideology you can have as much ideology as you want but we have to think about realism of the fact that this is actually increasing harm and not reducing harm so it's like you know you you can wish for a world that didn't have um sex worker prostitution and that would be great if no one had to have sex when they didn't Mm. want to especially and we wouldn't have people having to have sex to put food on the table for them and their kids but at the end of the day if we're advocating for laws that is are putting vulnerable people in vulnerable situations i i just don't know how there's not a bit of reflection on uh, around the reality of that yeah it's quite astonishing i think um i guess some argument uh that these people have is that um you know just having less uh sex work or less people in sex work um, is reducing violence in itself, but like, I don't know if people are then uh, <laughs> deported out of sex work or kicked out of their apartments or um, or are forced to quit selling sex um, because of police harassment. Like, I don't know um, where do they get money, where do they get food on the table, how do they feed their children? Like, majority of the migrants I talk with, they are usually mothers who are working to. Um, push themselves out of poverty, build houses, educate their children. Um, And I have a hard time seeing how any of these laws or this kind of approach to sex work uh, would do anything good for these people. Yeah, absolutely. Like, again, it's a poverty issue rather than a legal issue in in many ways. And then so so on the flip side, then to the Nordic model, what we have then is decriminalization, um, which is what a lot of sex workers have said they they would like to see instead. So what what does decriminalization look like? 
Well, decriminalization is currently um, at place in New Zealand. And um, I think just recently, um, uh, uh, the state of Victoria in Australia has implemented yes, it. Yeah. So it, it means that um, there would be no specific laws uh, in relation to uh, sex work or prostitution. So in a way, there would be no regulation of where, when, and how um, you can do sex work, um, and it would also prevent. It also prevents uh, officials uh, of intervening um, uh, into sex work if there are not other laws that apply. For example, laws against labor ex- exploitation, trafficking, or uh, kind of health um, uh, regulations, or these kind of things. So, in a way, it calms uh, the sex work from police harassment um, and and there's also a strong emphasis at least in New Zealand um, and also in Australia that um, that the law should center and the, the initiative should center sex workers and their needs and also kind of center center their, their health so so um, I see it as a sex worker-centered model that tries to take their experiences and expertise um, at the center of policymaking. Mm-hmm. Which sounds more feminist than ignoring what sex workers want and placing them in situations of violence. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I, I've heard as well that in places like New Zealand, it, it, it's kind of viewed as more of a labor issue. So people um, who are working, say, in maybe legal brothels, they can organize and have like unions and, you know, fight for better labor rights. And, you know, again, that seems like that would be a really good and empowering thing, but also to like that collective organization part of things seems a lot more feminist as well than forcing people to work on their own. Definitely. Yeah. Like, I think it's important that people can, like, can claim their rights in relation to sex work and in relation to managers, in relation to clients, um, instead of, like, uh, being forced to hide and, and, um, and like, um, uh, avoid the, the officials. And, of course, like, collective working environment is, like, we, like, very few of us want to work alone. And um, in addition to collective organizing for the workers' rights, many um, sex workers I have talked with is that have said that working in brothels, for example, or in a collective, like it's safer, but also um, you have people to share your working experiences with. Uh, You're not uh, like staying in an apartment alone the whole day waiting for the clients to come, you have somebody to hang out. Um, If you're a new sex worker, you can learn tips about safety and how to deal with clients. So I think it has many, many benefits in that sense. And, and, and having a community of other workers is, is, is very important, especially due to the stigma related to sex work and, and not maybe being able to talk about your work related issues uh, outside your, uh, your circle, circle of colleagues. Yeah, but that, that's one really important point. I'm really glad you brought that, that up because that stigma, you know, and, and isolation can really impact people's mental health and then in turn their physical health as well if they, you know, are engaging in maybe substance use or something like that. Mm-hmm. But so that, you know, to have that kind of community feels a little bit healthier and it feels like um, 
there's more support perhaps and and you know more of a, a like you said earlier a health approach so is there more of an engagement maybe with support services you know if someone was in addiction or someone wanted to leave or if they needed sti checks even is there more of a, a willingness to come forward and, and link in with, with support services i'm sure like if people gather together like um um it is easier to offer different services and and develop different initiatives like in sweden some of the sex workers i talked with had never talked about their work to anyone like uh, this the, because the law has increased also stigma so much so um and made organizing more difficult so so it is isolating people so in that sense having a more open social uh, approach to sex work and having collective spaces uh, for sex workers to gather, I think is essential for kind of harm reduction services and also um, offering pathways um, to, to other industries and, 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 and like education and, and so on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And I think, you know, like you said, it, it's hard to build up a picture of what the reality is in the ground if people aren't talking to researchers and saying, you know, because I'm sure the experiences of, you know, a, a collective brothel and everyone is, you know, pretty happy with their lives. That's going to be obviously extremely different to someone who's really, really struggling and, you know, not having a great time. So it's important that all those you know perspectives are heard but it's it's hard to reach those like you said if you know in sweden the services aren't in different languages and they aren't accessible to others so it's like how do we try and make sure everyone's voice is heard in these kind of conversations well i don't know if like in sweden there is no effort to include everybody's voices it's um like um, there is this very uh, stigmatizing and um, hatred-filled uh, talk about people who who use the word sex work to describe themselves as being um, part of the the pimp lobby, so promoting um, the benefit of the pimps uh, and managers rather than sex workers themselves. And kind of the only way to be acknowledged there is to claim the victim position that um, sex work was bad. It was a, a form of violence uh, against me. And um, yeah, so so there is no inc- like effort to include various voices. Um, and the migrant um, sex workers uh, are mainly represented by anti-trafficking organizations who have a radical feminist agenda. And then there is a very vocal police um, who has worked in the prostitution units who who talks um, for the migrant women or, or women in, in sex work. Um, but he's also engaged in this um, radical feminist uh, discourse and his books are very kind of voyeuristically um, disgusting descriptions of violence and, and sex. Yeah, wasn't there something about, was it blood and tampons or something? He was just giving unnecessary graphic detail? Yeah, a lot of graphic details about the smells and the sounds. And um, uh, like I I read uh, his books. He has written, I think, 
um, to kind of um, like, I don't know, like based on his work, like documentaristic books, if you can call them. And then now he's moved into writing novels that are in the same world um, because they're so popular, uh, but they are really hard to read um, because they are like, they're meant to um, provoke disgust. And he has his own uh, personal um, archive of photos. I don't know how this can be legal that he takes pictures um, from his police work and and uses them in his book and and different things. But yeah, for example, he has these uh, images of big dildos um, and uh, lubricants and um, condoms uh, on the night tables in a kind of like dirty looking setting or then yeah, counting the used condoms in the trash and uh, uh, bloody tampons and like picturing them and and these kind of like that really provoke disgust to bodily matters and these kind of things so yeah but it is kind of like a rhetorical technique that is very common in the radical feminist uh discussions on sex work yeah. that quite quite violent imagery and, and and just yeah to situate this topic as one of disgust that most people won't pry too deeply into because if we're super disgusted by something we don't really kind of get into the nuances of the conversation. We just say, oh, that's disgusting. And that must mm. be like that for every situation. And I think people know that and they utilize that then in their conversations that they have. And yeah, that's that just sounds very violating to have the pictures used like that. You know, it's, it's an extra layer of removing dignity for somebody. Yeah, I, I just... I don't know, like it's, it's repulsive. That's all I can say. But um, yeah, and I don't know how he can ask the policeman take pictures with his phone and use these that they are from the so-called crime scenes. But um, yeah, but my, he's I such a popular too. like a savior figure in the Swedish media that nobody cares what he does. Um, Okay, a little uh, unethical there, to say the least. That's that's pretty worrying. But, and you mentioned trafficking there as well. So obviously, look, trafficking, I don't think anyone's going to really agree that that's a good thing. Um, You know, it's never usually... Uh, any, any kind of happy sides and happy stories to mm. something like trafficking which is pretty horrendous but you know when people conflate trafficking with consensual sex work a lot or even survival sex work and it, it, you know how does it like the rates in Ireland for trafficking have apparently really increased since we brought in the Nordic model because sex workers before would have linked in with the police and told them hey this girl seems like she might be trafficked or something and now obviously that's not happening as much and would, would that be the case that you've seen that in your research that whenever you have nordic models coming in there's higher rates of trafficking or is is there research around that it's hard to say because like the trafficking um statistics are like it's hard to make comparisons it depends how much police work is put um into investigation and, and and so on, and also kind of what kind of benefits um, the traffic people can have from coming forward and going to the legal process, um, because often the status is 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 tied to the criminal process. But um, what I saw in my research was that the the, the fact that um, uh, like through the Nordic model, the police has started to cooperate with hotels uh, and apartment hotels. Um, to um, to prevent trafficking, so to speak, which basically means just um, reporting sex workers um, 
in the hotels and, and kicking them out. And this has meant that um, for sex workers, especially if you come uh, from abroad, it is harder to find a place to work. And um, many interviewees that I had had then um, been forced to kind of turn to more unofficial parties that offer housing uh, for sex work. And often the rent in these places was, for example, the price of one client, like let's say 150 euros a day. Um, so in a way, we can see that it's increased dependence on third parties or managers or people who exploit or I don't know if it's exploitative, but like take exploitative rents uh, because they take the risk of being um, accused of pimping. And of course, if you have trouble um, finding apartments on your own, um, there is more risk that um, you have to deal with people who might be exploitative in general in organizing your working conditions. So it reduces autonomy and independence, um, in other yeah. words, in sex work. Exactly. And, and yeah, and that choice to try and keep yourself safe in, in the way that that person decides it then as well. Uh, but the international research, like people like Amnesty International, who are obviously extremely highly respected for their human rights work for decades now, they, they've conducted research with sex workers who said we would like the decriminalization model rather than the, the Nordic model. But some people completely reject the work of amnesty in this area and they kind of minimize it and it seems you know it seems more of an ideological approach than actually critiquing the research and what was actually said in it yeah it's like there's many human rights organizations in addition to sex workers own organizations that promote decriminalization like you said amnesty international uh world health organization um human rights watch um in the US, um, uh, American Civil Liberties Union, which is kind of like a very old um, civil rights organization is supporting decriminalization. And they all have like evidence-based, research-based approach. But um, for some reason, like in this field, I feel sometimes that the evidence <laughs> and the realities of the, of the field or on the ground uh, uh, disappear and it becomes only an ideological question um, and and it leads to kind of other than sex workers deciding on what's good for people in the sex trade and often the discussion is held above uh, um, sex workers heads and this is the thing I find with, with sex work so much and this is you know why I did my PhD you know for new listeners I did my PhD in the experiences of women working in the American porn industry because I noticed in my previous studies that like we just didn't mention them we didn't talk to them we didn't talk about them but we talked about feminists who spoke about them or other writers who spoke about them so we didn't hear from the sex worker directly um and that's why I, I chose to do my research but like it just feels like an in very little other industries would we allow that like it's really unethical you know if I went into a bunch of nurses and said I'm going to tell you what your situation is like and I'm going to make laws but I'm not going to listen to you people would find that pretty horrible you know but like yet when it comes to sex work you know what is it that people can go I know better than you know I'm the expert your voice I don't have to bother listening to it like why what is that about sex work that allows for that to happen 
Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I don't know if I can fully answer to that, but um, I definitely recognize what what you're saying. Um, and maybe something is about like that people think sex through their own bodies or own imaginaries and have hard time recognizing that different sexual acts or um, different things related to sex are different for different people and um, kind of uh, take this very kind of emotional, embodied, uh, own understanding um, of sex work and push it into the political arena. Um, yeah, otherwise it's hard to um, it's hard to understand how uh, some group of people can be so overtalked as sex workers are. Yeah, and on on such a, a global basis as well, it's you know like there are you know sex worker rights organizations around the world who get disinvited from conferences and and things like this, and it, it's just. It just seems bizarre that people have organized and they're looking out for each other and they're trying to improve their own lives, but they're not given a seat at the table to do that because of ideology. Like, mm. it just seems mad. Like, do you think, you know, that question of like, you know, we're going to end demand, like, do you ever see a world where we will have zero sex work? I, I have a hard time imagining um, that. Like, um, there are people who enjoy sex work who feel that it's... Um, uh, a way to express themselves, um, and also we live in a in a capitalist economy. Um, and for many, sex work um, provides a better work provides better working conditions, more autonomy, uh, more flexibility than um, other kind of like uh, other work that you can get without higher education or or even with higher education um, uh, you can get. So. Um, I have a hard time seeing it would end, and especially through kind of policing and uh, and criminalizing um, people. I think if you want to, um, I don't know, diminish sex work, if that that's your goal, I think um, I think uh, English Collective of Prostitutes uh, has had a good slogan where they. Uh, state that they they fight uh, for their right to do sex work and not to do sex work. So, so kind of linking it to broader uh, social economic battles of access to education, uh, decent income, good working conditions, uh, etc. So, I think um, at least I assign to to that kind of politics. And I think um, um, thinking about also my field work, it would be the thing that I, I kind of feel echoed uh, by the people I talk with. So, do you, do you think, you know, obviously we've mentioned poverty, migration and rights and stuff, and we're, there's there's more of an acceptance nowadays, I think, for something like a universal basic income, and that's been trialed in a few countries. I want to say Portugal, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but Portugal have been really great at, you know, drugs decriminalization and things like this. Mm-hmm. So do you think if, if we did have universal basic income and like, you know, that great access to service, do you think that would be enough to to allow a lot of people to move out of sex work then? Well, at least it would provide a baseline of income. So then you can choose, you can, you could choose your clients more. Um, 
you would have less precarious working conditions because with sex work, you never know when and how much money you're going to get. So you have stability. Um, I think it would definitely increase autonomy. Um, so I think, yeah, that would be one very good solution um, um, for kind of problems in, in, in sexual commerce. And I could see that also because um, I was interviewing people who were citizens and who were non-citizens um, and the city in Finland, the, the basic um, welfare is pretty good. So the people who had access to social welfare and social benefits, um, they had much better working conditions than the people who didn't because they had to kind of like, um, well, if they were migrating, they had to pay the, the, the rent and the travel and like work uh, so that they can uh, cover their basic income and travel costs and everything. So, of course, that puts you in a different position um, than having this basic security uh, um, and then maybe doing sex work on the side. Or or maybe you have more time to educate or do an internship if you want to move to another area of work. So definitely basic income would provide a lot of opportunities for people in whatever field they're working at the moment. So. Yeah, it would, it would be great to see those arguments a lot more rather than just the moral aspect, you know, and that being the only argument that, that we have. Because I think we do see that in a lot of media discussions of, oh, this is disgusting. I couldn't possibly do that. And it's like, mm. well, you can find it disgusting if you want. That's not the, the case for other people. And that's not a reason to make people unsafe in, in their job, you know, so... Yeah, definitely um, a multi-layered conversation, I think. And, and like you said, we're having to take into account things like migration and race and access to resources, uh, you know, is a huge part of it. So, um, yeah, a fascinating discussion. I think we might have to come back to it another time because there's so much more to it. And I know there's um, some upcoming res- reports coming out from people like Amnesty that are going to be an interesting um area then we'll, we'll see how they are received and you know mm-hmm. if you're in ireland the re- review of the 2017 sex work laws will be out some point this year possibly uh who knows with covid at the moment but i would you know suggest to educate yourself and contact your td and um sex worker support groups as well if you want to get more information on that so nina it's it's been fascinating talking to you and you know i really appreciate your time to explain this because it's complicated for people when you know there's feelings involved and Mm. emotions and stuff so that's been fantastic and where can people find you if they want to contact you or learn more about your work that you're doing uh i'm i have a website and then i'm on twitter as well um my um Handle is N I I N A V U, but um, maybe you can add it to the I'll podcast text. Yeah, so it'll be in yeah, the show notes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What else? Yeah, I just want to thank you. I think it's great, Caroline, that you're doing this podcast and spreading sex positivity, and also talking um, about sex work in a kind of multi-layered way. So um, it's been really a pleasure, and and thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No, it's great. It's just great to have the space to to do that. So you know, there's lots, always lots of opinions to be heard. So um, um we are a very pro-sex worker um podcast. Um, you know, pro-sex work right podcast so as as all podcasts should be but unfortunately are not so anyway there um but yeah listen thanks Emil and thanks Emil to all my listeners for tuning in as well like
like I said, if you want to learn more about this, the best people to learn from are sex workers themselves. And there's tons of sex worker um, support groups and rights groups and advocacy groups based around the world. So I do encourage you to check them out and learn from people who are the experts of their own experiences. And I will chat to you next time. Bye.